It's Riley Reed, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty. This show eliminates the power of perspective. I share unfiltered, relatable conversations with a myriad of female visionaries, as well as my own mental health stories, lessons, and philosophies. This intro will probably be the longest I've ever recorded, so if you want to just skip ahead to the interview with Melissa Urban, do so now and know I won't be offended. I first want to call myself out. After exporting the audio of our recording, to my dismay, I realized that the app I used to record decided to use my AirPods mic as opposed to my legitimate mic. Therefore, the audio quality, while not bad, is not excellent, or at least not as excellent as Melissa's, as you will hear. This interview is near and dear to my heart, and you, faithful listeners, mean a lot to me. I strive to bring you only the best content, so beyond my own issues with perfection, I'm truly sorry. On another note, I am over the moon to reveal my recent conversation with a friend and life teacher, Melissa Urban, who has a book, The Book of Boundaries, releasing on October 11, which, yes, is next week. Engaging, sincere, and the wizard of boundaries, Melissa is a Whole30 co-founder, CEO, recovered addict, best-selling author, mother, and podcast host. She considers nature her church. Melissa has found an avenue to empower people to examine their own stories, find their voice, set and hold boundaries, and step into their power. She believes that inspiring change is a matter of getting vulnerable, stepping up to the mic, and speaking truth unapologetically. In fact, that very commitment is how I first discovered Melissa's work. A few years ago, she was interviewed at South by Southwest and the question of lack of diversity in the Whole30 community was posed. Rather than neglecting the question or defending herself, Melissa called out her own lack of ignorance and displayed authentic eagerness to learn and further a plan she had built to improve DEI in the Whole30 community. At the time I was going through my first Whole30, Disappointed that I couldn't find representation in the community. Ever since, I have seen her commit over and over again and continue to build awareness and allyship. It is one thing to create boundaries. It is another to set them in stone. The biggest lesson I learned from our interview is that boundaries are not restricting. In fact, they are the contrary. Boundaries lead to expansiveness. I can't believe this is the first time we're actually speaking. I know. It it feels weird because I'm like, well, obviously I know you, but we don't. We have only like talked on Instagram and tried to get together a few times when like I was in Austin or you were in the area. But I know it is nice to chat. It's tricky the way the world works. We do our best. I know we do, but it's nice that, you know, we have social media to make connections like this. And now when we're coming into it, yeah. I feel like I'm having a conversation with a friend instead of doing a podcast as a guest. So... <laughs> I'm glad it feels that yeah. way. And I agree. I was thinking back to the first time we talked and I was thinking about how everything you said that resonated with me still stands today oh. and how rare that is. And I feel like, you know, we throw around the word sustainability a lot. And um, I think it's unfortunate we don't really think about 
like sustainable language. Mm. And I feel like what you spoke into existence at South by, I think it was like four years yeah. ago. Um, you still talk about that today yeah. and it actually like was interwoven into whole 30 and your ethos and yeah. So thank you. I appreciate that. That means a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'm so excited to dive in and to really focus on how your work intersects with you personally. I'm grateful to have gotten a peek into your book that's coming out soon. And I found myself so interested in your story and that kind of like first chunk of just where you come from and and how you've arrived into where you are now. So I'm excited to explore that further. Um, I feel like I don't chuckle often (laughs) when I read a book and it was nice to chuckle like despite you talking about some dark, heavy stuff, you yeah, know? Yeah, good. And I love that you can bring kind of like brevity to the conversation. Yeah, good. I appreciate that. Yeah. I try, you know, I think in, I think my voice is like I'm funny. I'm dry. I have a very dry sense of humor. We'll talk <laughs> about that because that's my East Coast. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, on that note, I'd love to hear where you're from and how you identify with that place. Yeah. I grew up in Nashua, New Hampshire, which is – a city right on the border of Massachusetts. It's about 40 minutes outside of Boston. And New Hampshire is really beautiful if you've never been. We've got, you know, all within a two-hour drive, we've got mountains, we've got beach. I was four hours to New York and less than an hour to Boston. So from a geography standpoint, it's absolutely beautiful. And fall in New England is unlike anywhere else, I think, in the world. But I think the way I most relate to being from New Hampshire, being from New England, is in my communication style. If you speak to people from New England, we're not rude. We just don't need to talk to you unless it's transactional. And I think that for a very long time, my communication style is very direct, not unkind, but very direct. And when I first moved to Utah, which has a much more passive culture, Um, It was very clear that I was not from here immediately in all of my communications because my grocery store clerk would say, how are you? How's your day going? What did you do last weekend? And I would be like, why is this person talking to me? I don't know them. And of course, now I know that's just how things are done in the West. That's funny you say that because I feel like the relativity from the West to the South is similar. Like people in the South are, you know, so friendly sometimes, in my opinion, to a superficial fault. Whereas West Coast, I feel like, you know, there's just a little more surface level dialogue. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's all relative. I love it now. I I will talk to anyone and everybody now. I'm I'm talking to like total strangers or, you know, waiters or (laughs) servers, baristas, whatever. Like I'm really into it now, but it definitely was a learning curve in terms of communication style when I moved. Yeah. Did you find that COVID affected that at all? as far as how you relate to people and how you interact with people on a daily basis? I mean, I think I, we, I will just speak for myself. I lost, I feel like I lost the ability to people in public. When I first started going out in public again and like meeting with friends or being in groups of people I didn't know, I felt like I really lost a lot of the skills that I had around small talk and making conversation and making new friends. It all felt really awkward and to a degree I think it still does. And we became, I became so comfortable with talking into my phone and connecting with like thousands of people through that method, which is still connection, but it's obviously a different form of connection. So I am still, I think, bouncing back from COVID and the isolation that it brought and the 
stress and uncertainty in big social settings. I've done a few events since and it feels amazing and excellent and I want to talk to everybody and I'm so extroverted when normally I'm not and also I find that it's extra draining right now and I don't feel like I really know how to behave. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. I think a lot about how COVID changed me, like who, what parts of me might not have existed if it hadn't happened, yeah. you know? Um, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know, you think about times in history and, you know, there are people who still have like pennies in their basement just in case like things crash, you yeah. know? And it's, it's like, how will that in, in the long term, like bird's eye view affect us? You know, I think it already has, but yeah. it's interesting to think about on a, on a personal level. So I kind of want to stay on this communication connection, yeah. um, topic. I'm curious how you draw lines online because you, you have a large fa uh, family, <laughs> you have a large online family, yeah. a large online presence and, I feel like you do come off in a way that is is friendly and relatable and open. And sometimes that can um, make people think that they have easy access mm -hmm. to you. Yeah. So yeah. how do you manage maintaining that persona and, and that reality of who you are yeah. while also maintaining your peace? Yeah. So from a very very early on in my career, I've used a principle that I believe was Brene Brown's where she talks about the difference between intimate and personal. So I share things that are personal on my Instagram page. I will talk about what I ate for lunch, the hike I did that day. Um, I'll talk about my relationship with my husband. My dog is being so needy right now. Can you see him? He is just like... I can't oh, see him, but I can see Henry. that you're moving your hands and it looks like a He's pet, so, so insistent. <laughs> um, so I will talk about things that are personal and I will talk about deeply personal things. I talked about that time I got chlamydia. I've talked about my trauma. I've talked about my addiction. But I only talk about those things after I have had the capacity to process them effectively with myself, with my therapist, and with the people in my real life. I don't share things that are intimate. And I'm the only person who knows where that line is, but intimate is certain details of my relationship with my husband. Intimate is my son. I do not talk about my son on social media. I do not name him. We do not share photos of him. That is a hard line that I've never wanted to explore or cross. Um, I don't talk about things that I'm going through in the moment if they feel too raw. That just feels too intimate to share with people. So that guideline kind of allows me to show up in a way that feels truly authentic and also allows me to keep the things that I need to keep just for me so that I feel like I have aspects of my life that really are private and special and sacred for me. And I always say, it's not your job to guess my boundaries. When I say, ask me anything, I mean, ask me anything. And people come back with some really deeply personal questions, but it's not your job to know where that line is for me. It's up to me to decide what is personal, what is intimate, and what I am and am not willing to share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, as I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you, which I knew would change as you spoke, um, which there are a thousand things, but uh, time, of course, is a construct that we're limited by. <laughs> I digress. I do feel like I have this resentment sometimes like post boundary failure is what I've called it, where I feel like I should have said something different or I should have taken care of myself first, mm. but I didn't. And now I'm mad at myself. Yeah. And so like, what do you do in that, in that time afterwards when 
you, it's like, it's too late. You might not meet that person again. Yeah. Or like, how do you remedy now that it's the conversations passed? Yeah. What do you think about that? Gretchen Rubin has a concept from her four tendencies framework, which is how we respond to inner and outer expectation called obliger rebellion. And if you think about obligers as people pleasers, people who just really want other people to be comfortable and who really want to be liked and who really just want to like put other people's needs ahead of your own, what can happen that rebellious kind of nature where you're just sort of holding your tongue for so long can sometimes come out as this blurted out boundary that maybe isn't as well-spoken or as kind as you would have wanted it to be in the moment, but you like held on to it for such a long time that you just sort of explode. Or maybe you don't do anything at all and you just let the person go on and on and on and on. And eventually they sort of wander away and you think to yourself, I that was like an hour of my life and I wasn't enjoying that conversation and why didn't I just say something? And, and then you can spend another hour beating yourself up for the things that you didn't say and the time that you lost. And so both of those, I think, are two sides to the same coin. The first is, you know, it's important to recognize that you have ne you have needs and your needs are worthy and to feel comfortable speaking up clearly but kindly in the moment. If that wasn't the conversation you were ready to have or it felt too overwhelming, you absolutely have every right to say something. And also, if you didn't do that in the moment, recognize I didn't do that because I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't have done that any differently in the moment. And I know that's true because this is what I did. This is the reality. And maybe I couldn't do it because I felt uncomfortable, because I haven't yet internalized this idea that my needs are worthy and my needs matter, that this is a new person and I wasn't sure how to say it in a way that didn't make her feel offended. And so you can go back and think about, okay, these are all of the things that I didn't do. And here's why I probably didn't do them. And maybe you don't even know. You just felt uncomfortable. And next time, here's what I could say. Oh, let me interrupt you. I'm not sure I'm following this conversation. And I'll be honest, it's been about an hour and I'm feeling like I need to take a little rest. Thank you so much for coming by. It was so lovely to meet you. When we you know, walk by you later on the weekend, we'll be sure to pop over and say hi. And then practice that script so that the next time it happens, you actually have the words. But spending mm -hmm. time going over what you could have or should have or would have done is not standing in your power because you don't have that power because it happened in the past and it doesn't actually help you do something different in the future to uphold your own needs. Mm -hmm. I love the uh, advice to practice the script. Mm -hmm. I think that I, I talk about that around photography sessions, like look in the mirror and see what you like. Like, is it the right side of your face? Is it like when you really smile, yeah. when, you, when you suddenly smile, you know? So um, there is something to be said for that time when you're alone. And I think it speaks to reflection. You know, there's so much consumption, but what about like taking a beat to reflect on how you want to behave when you don't really have the space to reflect because you're inundated by some kind of social experience, you know? Yes. So yeah, I love that. I definitely don't do that. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in my my toolkit. I think practicing, you know, your body, your brain doesn't know the difference between imagining an activity in like great detail and actually doing the activity, right? All of this like sports psychology proves that. So practicing just makes it feel more automatic. Not only do you now have the words kind of on repeat, but your body somatically knows what it feels like to say no, thank you. Um, I'm good. Or, oh, let me stop you there. This isn't a conversation I want to engage with. 
you feel that now in your body and it becomes so much easier for, for it to just sort of come out very naturally and organically in the moment because you've mm -hmm. had that repetition and that practice. Yeah, that's really good. I think about that with gossiping too with friends when they just ask questions about other people who might be close to you and it's like, that's their business. Yeah. I don't want to yes. talk about that, but it gets, it gets awkward, you know? Well, yeah, it can because of the way they yeah. respond to it. But there's right. like a whole other sermon about how how they you know choose to respond to your healthy boundaries, like not your business and not your problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's rewind back to younger Melissa. Where where was the turning point in your life that compelled you to step into this work? Um, what what's the the key story in your mind that that happened and that inspired you to to do what you do now, but also to be who you are now? You know, I tell a story about the first boundary I ever set, which was 22 years ago, fresh out of recovery for the second time for my drug addiction and, and really blurting out this boundary because I found myself like at a party I didn't belong at with people I didn't know in an environment that was not safe for me or my recovery and feeling just absolutely terrified that I wasn't going to make it back this time and blurting out what I now know was an honest to God boundary. And I don't, you know, at the time, I didn't see that as like a pivotal moment. Per perhaps you can never see those as pivotal moments in the moment. You have to kind of wait until you have the benefit of hindsight. But that one boundary that I set around like, I can't be at this party. I am not safe here. I need to go home was really the catalyst for me setting a ton of boundaries in my recovery to protect my health and protect my life in that moment. And it was the realization for me that boundaries, I thought, were going to make my life smaller, that they were going to separate me from people I loved, and they were going to put up walls and create distance and isolate me. And exactly the opposite was true, that boundaries were the key to expanding my life beyond my wildest imagination. My relationships all got better. I had more trust. We had more mutual respect. We were able to share openly and more vulnerably. And the people who could not uphold my boundaries, I simply got rid of. And I needed to mm -hmm. for my own health and safety. I set boundaries with myself that allowed me to you know, show up more authentically and actually create the life that I wanted to live as a healthy person with healthy habits. They were so incredibly expansive and they taught me for the first time probably in my whole life that my needs were worthy, that I had worth and value and that I had every right to advocate for myself and probably nobody else was going to do it for me. So it was really up to me. And so looking back, that was obviously the turning point for my entire career with Whole30 and wellness that came from my recovery experience and my foray into health and fitness as part of my recovery and certainly my work with boundaries. How do you maintain uh, those boundaries? And, you know, I feel like sometimes when that sharp pivot happens and you're in the beginning of, of feeling really inspired and like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make change it, it, that's where like, there's a lot of energy. But then as the days go on, you know, things can get boring. Like oftentimes the, the, where the success lies, that's where it's boring. That's where the consistency is. Yeah. That's where the monotony is. And so how have you, how have you mastered continuing to set the boundaries, continuing to build the routines that 
we've seen online that, you know, um, make you feel good. And how, how do you do that? I know you've talked about motivation yeah. and how that's not necessarily the key. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Yes. I think that especially in the beginning of any new effort or habit change or life stage, of course, you're incredibly motivated because it is energizing. It is exciting. It's that like bright, you know, shiny object. But if you rely on motivation to precede action, you are going to fall flat on your face. Nobody is motivated 24-7. I am not motivated 24-7. You're not even going to be motivated to do the things that you want to do or that you enjoy doing. And that's before you throw things on top of it like, you know, mental a mental health struggle. When I'm depressed, for example, I'm not motivated to do anything, even the things that I love. So I talk about how motivation can't precede action because if you're leaning on motivation, at some point that's going to fail. And what I've done since the beginning is recognize that action is actually what drives motivation. And the way that I continue to act is by making the goal just showing up. I've always just called it showing up for myself. And, you know, BJ Fogg in his book, Tiny Habits, talks about these little tiny micro habits and micro wins. And there's tons of habit research and science that goes into this. But I always thought about it as just showing up. How can I show up for myself every day? And my mantra at the time, the growth mindset I adopted when I was new to recovery, is that I am a healthy person with healthy habits. And that became the, the sort of foundation on which I based every decision after that. And my mm. the act of going to the gym started not, I'm going to go to the gym and do an hour workout. It was, I laid all my clothes out the night before, and the only thing I had to do was wake up when my alarm went off and put on my gym clothes. If I didn't want to go to the gym after I put them on, I didn't have to. I didn't make myself. The point was, a healthy person with healthy habits would get up when their alarm went off, and they would go put on their gym clothes. I will tell you, I never once didn't go to the gym because standing around in my house at 530 in the dark in my gym clothes made me feel really dumb. And I was like, well, I'm up now. Might as well go. But the point was, I made the goal. I made the action of showing up so small that I always won. And I will tell you mm -hmm. that I deserved every single one of those wins. I deserved every single like self five, high five. Good job, Melissa. You're doing awesome. I deserved every one of those having come from the five years of addiction that I just came from, but I I continue to use that now to this day. Am I showing up for myself and what does that look like? And sometimes showing up means waking up, recognizing I am not in a physical space to do a workout and getting another half hour of sleep. Sometimes showing up means just going for a really easy walk with my dog instead of doing a workout. Sometimes it means going out to the garage, doing five minutes of movement and going, nope, this doesn't feel good today and doing my little meditation and coming inside. All of that counts. And that's how I've been able to build the consistency to make some of these things like 20 year, you know, habits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it was a question you put in your book. What's the tiniest thing you can do? Yes. I, I love that because it's like it's so easy to think of the biggest thing, you know, what is the insurmountable thing? What is the path of most resistance? And I do feel like sometimes for me, that's a defining factor of who I am. Like if I can do the hardest thing. That makes me a better person, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah, it's just not necessary. I mean, there might be seasons for that, right? If there's a season where you are really motivated and you do have capacity, you've got time, you've got energy, you've got mental health, all of these things are working in your favor. Yes, go tackle that big thing. Amazing. 
But that can't be the only way that you measure or navigate success because those are seasons. And that, for me at least, that is not something that I'm prepared to commit to every day. Do you have self-induced boundaries? I don't know if that's the right term or if that sounds kind of harsh, but if you're up at 5.30 and you're in your gym clothes and you look at your laptop and remember something that you have to do and you don't want to forget later, how do you set the boundary to not go do that thing? Like, especially technology, it's so tempting. It is. Have you created tactics for yourself? Yes. Self-boundaries are incredibly important and often overlooked when you're having the conversation. I think people think about boundaries in terms of things you set with other people to keep your relationship healthy, but the boundaries that you set with yourself are incredibly powerful and equally important and often are the first step in creating a new healthy habit. So one of my self-boundaries is that I do not look at my phone before my morning routine is done, meaning I'm not on Slack, I'm not on email, I'm not on social media, I'm not looking at comments, I'm not looking at DMs. I make sure that my morning routine gets done. And in the beginning, the way that I would hold to this boundary is by creating as many like black and white sort of short and simple limits around it. So for example, if my habit is to wake up in the morning, reach for my phone, check the time and then swipe up, I don't charge my phone in the bedroom because if it's not there, I can't pick it up and look at it. When I now I don't need that boundary anymore because it's become habitual and ritualistic. And I know what happens if I look at my phone before I start my morning routine, which is it could potentially send my day completely sideways. And the risk of that is just Mm -hmm. not worth it. So I don't need to have that like strict of a kind of rule anymore. But if it helps people, yeah, keep the phone out of the bedroom. Put a little notepad and a piece of paper there. I'm not saying don't have good ideas in the middle of the night. I'm saying you don't need to open up your laptop and dive into work before you've done your morning routine in order to get that good idea down on paper. So thinking through some of the areas of your life where you feel especially stressed or that feel especially hectic or that make you feel especially anxious can be a good indicator that a boundary is needed. And maybe that boundary is with yourself. If your mornings always feel like you're putting out fires, ask yourself, what are some boundaries I can set with myself to ensure that my morning goes in a smoother direction? And um, when it comes to rigidity and uh, kind of a level of strictness, there, what about, do you feel like you're a free-spirited person? No. I like rules. Okay. I like structure. I'm a Gretchen Rubin upholder. I follow I follow the rules. <laughs> like, no, I like structure. I can be. I, I have figured out how to build free-spiritedness into my day. But by nature, I am a very linear person. So if you were talking to someone who, who considers themselves free-spirited and go with the flow and whatever – what would you say to them as far as their identity goes? Yeah. Like, what if, like, for me, I think they're going back to the path of most resistance. Like, there are these parts of yourself that you want to uphold. Maybe it's ego, maybe it's pride, or maybe it's just this is how I've been all my life. And so I want to, I want to stand by this with, you know, um, I don't know, some kind of like zest. So, if you're challenged by something that you know is good for you, but you want to maintain that identity, where is the balance between the two? Or are they just not relevant to each other? Well, no, I think they are. If you think they're relevant to each other, then they are, right? You just made the mm-hmm. connection between this thing that you want to do that you know serves you and this identity that may be in conflict with doing this thing. So if you've created a relation between them, then there they are. From like a big picture perspective, I think it's worth doing some work on why you are attaching worth and value to this aspect of your identity. That's certainly something that I had to do 
around my, you know, identity as an active person. I'm an active person. I hike, I walk, I work out, I do yoga, I am always active. I don't I don't need naps. I get 8 hours of sleep a night and I wake up energized and when I attached worth and value to that identity, it made doing things for my own health, like resting when I have concussion symptoms, really hard because it kind of put those two things in conflict. And what I had to do was reframe how I think about my identity and how I think about this concept to go back of of showing up. So instead of, it's really important for me to maintain this as an active person, my reframe becomes, I am... My identity is that I am deeply committed to checking in with myself and asking myself what I need in this moment. That's the thing that I come back to over and over again. And that is something that can never be taken away from me, right? Being an active person, that was gone for two years while I navigated concussion symptoms. I always can be the person who checks in with myself and says, what do I need in this moment? And that allows me to A, always uphold whatever boundaries I want to set with myself, B, not be so rigid it doesn't serve me. Because if I'm constantly checking in, then it is, do I still need this boundary? Is this the specific boundary that I need? Do I need to tighten it up? Do I need to relax a little more? Am I in a a different life period or is there a different context right now that would require a change to this boundary? So I think making that shift where instead of looking to external factors, we are making the win and the showing up, checking in with ourself, I think can change the framework of like just about any habit or effort that we want to either begin or stop doing. I feel like uh, you described self-actualization just now, like uh, to to be, you know, kindly, delicately aware of yourself yeah. in like the quiet moments yeah. is is really crucial to, you know, varying life. Yeah, it is. I, I thought about this quote that I love. It says, uh, your story is not the plot. Your story is how the plot changed you. Mm. And it's it's been a really important reminder for me because sometimes the trauma of my past can burden me to the point of deep nostalgia, melancholy. It can kind of like rob me of the present. You've had some pretty traumatic events in your past. I relate to what you went to went through as a teenager. I have some parallels to that. And I was an athlete for 15 years. So I, I have recently said maybe when it becomes a third of my life, I'll let it go. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm at the halfway point for like half of my life. I was an athlete. And a lot of trauma was wrapped up into that identity. And so I'm still sifting through how to let it go. I feel like you haven't necessarily let it go. You just carry it with strength and elegance. So how do you do that? How do you carry it without being burdened by it? A long time ago, I had a therapist say to me, right now, you are looking at this pattern, this like incident, this whatever you want to call it, almost like a a pattern on a carpet and you are like your face is pressed to the carpet and that is your trauma and it is filling your whole frame and that is what you see. As you go through this process of processing and unpacking and moving it through your body and you will start to to like pull back and it will just become a part of this enormous pattern that has become your life. And that's a really apt analogy, I think, because 
my trauma, my, you know, this sexual abuse and my addiction will always stay with me. It's always a part of me. It impacted everything that came after it and it impacted who I am today in a huge way. And it's still, there are times where I still find myself like in pain. You know, my trauma happened when I was 16. I'm 48 now and I will still go back to that 16-year-old little girl and feel her pain. So it's there. But I, I don't feel like it defines me at all. I don't feel like I um, am still, I don't feel like I'm carrying it, right? It's a part of me, but it's not like on my back. And I mean, I've just done decades of therapy and decades of processing to get to that point and a ton of self-work where I have reminded myself and like told myself through reparenting through that you know reparenting of that young girl all the way up you did the best you could you had a really you were in a really shitty situation and you did the best you could to save your own life and I'm really proud of you for doing that and like I've got you now that's a lot of sort of the mm -hmm. conversations that I'm having with this like young Melissa in this reparenting moment so I don't know that's kind of an all over the place answer but I don't think that there's any one like strategy or any one reason why I feel like I'm not carrying it. I just think it's a buttload of work and a whole lot of like being willing to dig into all of those shadows and pull it apart and try to figure out what I thought it meant and what it actually means. Yeah, that was beautifully put. It reminds me, I recently read a book called No Bad Parts. It's about the internal family systems model and you, you mentioned parenting yourself, and he talks about these different parts that we have who carry burdens and their pathways to those parts where mm -hmm. we can relieve them of the burdens. Yeah. But it's about coming back to like your personhood is in control. Your personhood is the leader and you don't have to um, let the parts take over, but you can respect them and love them and, yeah. and heal them, you know? Yeah. Uh, easier said than done, easier read than done. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love the pattern example, though. That really resonated. Yeah, I, that was that happened very early on, and I didn't really understand it when she said it to me at the time. But now that I do think about it, it is. It's just something that happened. It's something that happened to me, not unlike other great things that happened to me. It carries a bit of a different weight, but I don't give it so much weight. Yeah. Can you talk about therapeutic methods that you use? You've spoken to a few of them um, that might be a little less understood in the modern day. I know you've talked about ketamine. You've talked about different sort of healing you've done around your concussion. But I'm just curious in general across the board to maintain your health. And I had no idea you were 48. So I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah. But in my mind, I was like, what? <laughs> and it's not it's not like uh I don't know what that means. Like age is just a number as they say, but you know, societally we associate certain um, appearances or ways of being with age, yeah. uh, which is problematic. And I'm sorry to say I've adopted some of yeah, that, but have. you're beautiful. Oh. And I love that you, there's a youth about you despite your wisdom, you know, it goes back to that intergenerational kind of ability to connect and, uh, yeah, I just think that that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. You you as your age is, is powerful. Thank you. In my head, I'm perpetually 26. So I don't, maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, you're like not surprised at all. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm not 40 at all. But yeah, I have, I have done decades of therapy to get back to your original question um, and a variety of modalities. Um, I, I 
react very well to traditional talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. I know it's very much sort of, there are other modalities, somatic modalities and EMDR and other modalities that are far more popular right now can be incredibly helpful and incredibly impactful. And I know all of the sort of cons of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is like all of the processing is done in your head and like that leaves out the entire like body system. But I respond very well to it. And I think maybe it is because I am so kinesthetically aware as well. I've, I do do a lot of personal work where I tap into my body I know where I'm feeling sensations in my body. I have a really good mind-body connection. So maybe that's why CBT works really well. But the bulk of the therapy I'm doing right now is still just talk therapy. And I get tremendous benefit from it. I think because I've supplemented it myself with like so many other different practices. I would consider all of my movement practices therapeutic. Every single one. Yoga, meditation, well, not really a moving practice, but yoga, all of my mobility work, my weightlifting, my hiking, 1000% therapeutic practices. I move things through my body first, and that allows me to then drop in and sort of help me process them cognitively far more efficiently. So I do a post-workout mm-hmm. meditation every time I do some sort of movement session, and that's super helpful. I've also done you know, acupuncture and massage therapy, breath work has been incredibly helpful for helping me like actually remove some of the stuff stuck in my tissues. And then you've got, you know, plant therapy and ketamine. I have talked about doing ketamine. I've done a number of ketamine treatments and I have found it incredibly helpful and impactful for helping me move out of like deep depressive states where nothing else is helping me budge. Um, I've also had experiences with ketamine where it didn't work very well, and that's a very tricky place for me to be as a recovering addict. So I approach Mm -hmm. those with caution, but I kind of see therapeutic practices as this like big buffet, and you can go and sample from like any and all of them. And I think the more you are able to sample from them in a way that requires like a relatively low lift, I know therapy can be expensive, but I think that there are options and alternatives that you can certainly implement yourself on your own or through a book or through an app. As many of those as you can try and adopt, I think you will find something in most of them that helps you move through whatever it is you're trying to move through or whatever kind of next level you're trying to get to. How do you manage your, or how do you protect your therapeutic practices? and also maintain your familial relationships and also act as your own boss. Mm-hmm. It's it's that time for yourself. How do you, it's sacred for you. Yeah. Uh, it keeps you, keeps you going. If something gets in the way, how do you, how do you decide that that thing in the way is, is worth it? Or if it's not, how do you say, no, I need to, mm-hmm. I need to go on a hike. I need to have my morning routine. I struggle with that. It's hard for me. I'll commit to something and then someone will need something from me. I'm just easily derailed. Yeah. I mean, that happens to most, I think most people, the kind of obliger people pleaser is the most common personality type. I am not that way. I have never been described as a people pleaser in my life. And part of it is just personality. Part of it is maybe growing up on the East Coast and learning this direct communication style. Maybe part of it was just like in rebellion to watching my family growing up have no boundaries like whatsoever. But I'm not a people pleaser. So 
I have no tr- no problem carving out time for myself because I recognize that my hour in therapy, my half morning on the weekend hiking alone where I leave my husband at home with the kid and the dog makes me show up as a better partner, a better parent, a better leader at work, a better teammate at work, a, you know, better for my community. I'm a better person when I do things that I know fill my own cup. And I think a misconception of boundaries is that boundaries are saying only me. I'm only going to take care of me. And they're not. Boundaries are just saying me too. You mm-hmm. and my family and my work and my team and like what people need from me, absolutely. I want to help you meet those needs, but I count too. And my needs value are valued too. So, you know, the way I handle it with my husband <clears throat> is that we have a very open and direct communication style. So if I said to him, hey, I really need some alone time. I'm going to go on a hike on Saturday. He would either say, cool, I get it. Like, maybe we could hang out Sunday instead. Or can we have Saturday night together? And that's awesome. That lets me know that he has a need and he's willing to work with me to have that need met. If he ever said to me, babe, I really need you to stay home on Saturday. I need the day with you. I would drop it in a heartbeat because he doesn't abuse that. I trust him that he, if he says he needs me, he does. And I can set myself aside in that moment because the rest of the time I am taking care of my own needs. So I think it can be hard to it can be hard to drop something that is so like important for your own personal growth or your own self-care if you are always dropping that thing for other people. But because mm-hmm. I am pretty solid in my boundaries with myself and with others, then if something does derail my hike or my therapy session or whatever that looks like, I can easily set that aside because I have built up like my glass is already pretty full. So it's okay if someone else yeah. like needs some extra sips right now, right? On, on the note of, of kind of life boundaries, you, you clearly love what you do. You show up enthusiastically. It's also your career and, you know, your life force. <laughs> and so how have you managed and navigated that? It can, it's hard. I mean, you're, you're a very creative person. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a creative person, it can be hard when your creativity demands, you know, uh, revenue in order for you to live. How have you managed that stress or, or have you, have you not been stressed by it? And so what's your secret? Mm. I am not a revenue or profit driven CEO at all. <clears throat> um, I care about impact. That's what really matters to me uh, is the whole 30 reaching more people. You know, th- this one person who came back with their boundaries story, they had an amazing experience from the advice I gave them. That's fantastic. That's really what drives and motivates me. And really early on in my career, when I went through a business split and also a divorce at the same time because they were the same person, I did this intense therapy practice around money because I was so worried that I wasn't going to have enough money, whatever that looked like through this business split, through this divorce. Was I still going to be able to do the work I loved? and have enough money. And I did this intense process where I ended up on the other side and I was like, oh, I'll always have enough. Now, I have a ton of privilege. I have family that I'm very close with that if I were ever in a bind could easily lend me money or take me in. Like I have friends. There's I have a ton of unearned privilege because of the way that I grew up and who like who I am as a person that affords me a certain level of comfort with this and also what I realized was that 
even if my entire business completely blows up and I can't afford to staff anybody else, I can find another job and I'll be okay. I can cut back my lifestyle by a significant degree and like we will be okay. And I started Whole30 on the side and I could keep it going on the side if I wanted to and I could keep helping people in my free time and continue to have an impact with the stuff that I've built. So in, you know, in part, I don't stress about it that much in part now because I have other people who worry about profit. I have a team of 25 people and one of their jobs is to worry about growth and profit and revenue and money. Um, but also because to me, the impact is so important and I know that I can adjust my life to accommodate whatever I need to in order to continue to feel like happy and fulfilled. So I'm mm -hmm. struggling right now with how like grossly privileged that answer sounds and I, and also like I can't help it. That is the reality of my life. So just acknowledge that there is a ton of privilege wrapped up in all of that. In the fact that I was even able to start a successful business in the in the first place is due in huge part to my unearned privilege. So yeah, like God, I have to acknowledge that, right? Well, how did you come to acknowledging it? Do you think that recognizing your privilege, your unearned privilege is a part of allyship? If someone were listening to you define what it means to be an ally and what it means to recognize your place, your privilege in society, would you attribute that awareness to it? Is that like one of your pillars? It's, the, it's where I started. The fact that I walk through life with a much easier path through no fault or due to no credit of my own, simply because of how I was born, was an enormous like lesson for me when I first learned about the concept of privilege and now shapes everything I do and talk about. Because when you say, oh, are you, you know, you have this impact driven business, are you worried about revenue? And I say, I'm not super worried about revenue. Do you know why? Because I'm white and straight and able-bodied and I have thin privilege. And I know that if I were to apply for a job, that makes me far more likely to get that job than somebody else. So when I say, when I answer questions like that, I have to go, I'm gonna answer like this because this is my reality, but my reality does not reflect everybody else's lived experience. And I think until you get to that point where you can identify at least some of the ways, because I'm still identifying ways in which I have privilege, I don't think you can show up effectively, not only as an ally, but just with like basic empathy for other people. I have a huge diverse community and I can't show up empathetically unless I acknowledge that their lived experience is not my own. How have you actively expressed that in the community? beyond this more kind of personal conversation we're having right now, which is one-on-one -on -one and kind of explorative, what does that look like in reality? You know, there's a lot of talk around, uh, what was the world? What can I do? It's helpless or something I can do. I don't think that's true. And I also think that is saying that one person could do so much to have effect. So there is a level of self-focus in that statement. And so what, what is what you just said, what does it look like front facing out in the world? Like how are you making change? How do you see what it means to make change? At the most basic level, I could 
easily image craft my life to make it look like I was so fantastic and other people just couldn't live up to it. So one of the one of the things that I do is I when I show up and when I talk to people about my life or people ask me questions like, how do you do it all? I'm like, oh, here's how. I have a half-time son and a full-time nanny. I'm financially stable. I have family support. I'm in therapy. Like, I try to show up not only sharing the kind of highlight, but all of the unearned things that allow me to sort of present this highlight. And so that's one of the ways, Mm -hmm. I think, by letting people know that what you see is not always what you get. Of course, from an operational and like business perspective, Whole30 has an enormous list of DEI values that we incorporate into everything we do. And the ways that we show up include, you know, our diverse hiring practices to creating a really transparent, we're about to launch this very transparent creator um, pay scale where it's like, hey, if you're a creator and you want to work with us, here are the different roles, here is what we pay, and we're going to make that absolutely public so that everybody knows what we pay and what's fair and so that nobody is worrying that they're going to get paid a different amount when they work with Whole30 because of some factor. So I think there are a number of things that you can do, but even just talking about it. I went on a podcast not that long ago with three men in the fitness industry who were talking about eating better and how like people just don't care. Part of the reason that people don't eat healthy is because they don't care. And I was like, hey, don't you think that's overlooking a huge number of systemic factors that make it really challenging for some people to eat healthy? And they didn't want to talk about it at all. And I was like, no, we're going to talk about this. I am going to bring this up. And I think that in and of itself is a really big first step is just like talking about it and acknowledging it and at the very least asking other people to acknowledge its existence. It's calling it out. Yeah. Yeah, I think in that way that that's a form of kind of outward boundary setting. I feel like a lot of times people think of boundaries as not saying something or as not doing something like you set your boundary around how you feel about the world and the the advocacy that's important to you by saying no, we need to go there. You know, I will not ignore this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a form of, of standing up for people who aren't in the room, you know, and, and who might not have the privilege to be yeah. there. So I think that's really important to touch on. And and I, I know there are a lot of people who will listen to this and who will take, you know, what you just said to heart. And and yeah, we need we need more of that. So I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Just learning. Yeah. Yeah. Who are your mentors and who are your teachers? You're a leader. You're a CEO. You just wrote a book. How do you find those people to look up to? If you live, if you live a hundred years, which you'll probably live more, you're halfway there. You're almost halfway there. I know. You know what I mean? So uh, who are those people? Are they older than you? Are they, are they, are they your peers? Are they people you don't know? How do you find them? You know, I haven't had a lot of mentors in my life, but the ones that I have had just happened to like be put in my place, right? They just were put in my path. One of my mentors was my old boss at the insurance company where I used to work before Hold30. Um, His name was Tom. My dad's name was Tom. So I used to call him like second Tom or second dad Tom. <laughs> and he really took me under my wing, under his wing and really helped me understand what it meant to be a business professional and to manage people. And I rose through the ranks at that company in part because of his leadership and guidance and his willingness to trust me with things that were definitely above my pay grade or above my area of expertise. But he was like, no, 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 I I really want you to grow. And in order to grow, I want you to do this. Another mentor of mine was a professor I had in college when I went back to school after rehab. 
Um, he happened to be my organizational behavior professor, and he really taught me a ton about communication and speaking to people the way they wanted to be spoken to. And he helped me flex that very direct and abrupt conversation style so that I was more effective at work and more effective in now in like, you know, all of my jobs. So they happen to kind of be put in my place. There are a number of people that I look up to and admire you know, from afar that I don't necessarily have a relationship with. I found them on social media. I kind of consume like everything they do and, you know, really admire who they are and how they show up. But I don't know how to find a mentor. I've never actively looked, to be honest. I think those relationships can absolutely be intergenerational. I also don't think that they need to be somebody younger looking to somebody older. There's obvious advantage in that and that the person has a broader depth of life experience and perhaps career experience. But, you know, I love the idea of, you know, we have um, some folks that we work with on Whole30's TikTok and Instagram feed that are Gen Z that are providing like a whole new direction for creation and ideation around the way that we show up in our community. And I think that's an equally effective sort of mentorship opportunity. Yeah, that community building. Yeah. There's a lot there. Why did you write the Book of Boundaries and who do you hope reads it? I feel like when you're on a stage and there are a lot of people there, yeah. sometimes it's helpful to just look at that one person who's already got tears in her eyes and just talk to yeah. her. And so I want to know why you wrote it and, and was there that, that person you were speaking to? I mean, I wrote it as a natural extension of the work that I've been doing for 12, 13 years through Whole30 in that you know, you say no a lot on the Whole30. It's an elimination program. And I wanted to help people say no comfortably to alcohol at happy hour or break room donuts or their mother-in-law's pasta during that 30-day health commitment. And then that naturally kind of grew into people realizing I was really good at helping them say no to that. And could I help them say no to their pushy mother-in-law or toxic coworker or nosy neighbor? So it's a natural extension, but I just think since the pandemic, especially, boundaries are so topical. They are one foundational practice that really supports every single health and wellness practice that you may want to implement. They improve all of your relationships. They re help you reclaim your time and your energy and your capacity and your money and your physical space and body. And they're something you can implement right now. You can start immediately. And that was something that I think I really wanted to share with people as a layperson's approach to boundaries, how you can actually take these very practical com concepts and implement them immediately into your life. I think the person I was really talking to, I think, was myself. And although not necessarily myself, definitely myself, but if I'm looking at the one person in the audience, it's a, it's a woman. She would describe herself as a people pleaser. She's exhausted. She's burned out. She's been told her whole life by the patriarchy and diet culture and religious influence, perhaps, that she doesn't or shouldn't have needs, that her needs aren't of value, that her job is to be compliant and small and serve. And and she's been so disconnected from her body because of those factors. And that's the person that I want to say, you can do this one thing right now to reconnect with your body, reconnect with your needs, reestablish your worth and value, start advocating for yourself in a, in a very kind way and watch every single relationship improve, every single area of your life improve. That's the person I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. What clarity for a book. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking about this one for a really long time. If you could talk to your younger self, have a little chit chat 
what would you say to her? I always love this question because younger me wouldn't listen at all, would not be at all interested <laughs> in like what this old lady Melissa version same, was trying to say. Same, right? same. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the things that I tell myself a lot in my reparenting therapy practices is like, you are so good exactly how you are. What I didn't realize then and what I would tell myself now is all of the things that I felt like I wasn't good enough because, because I preferred books to people, because I didn't want to have a lot of friends, I liked time by myself, because I was more quiet and introverted, because I really liked being like nerdy and smart and studious instead of going out and playing with my friends. All of those things are like a superpower all into themselves and you are so perfect exactly as you are and you are even more than that you are lovable exactly as you are that's the one thing that i tell myself over and over again thank you so much melissa your voice is powerful you're one of my teachers oh, I'm and honored. i'm so grateful that you came into my orbit so thank you for your thanks time so today. much riley it was great to, to chat with you in person Thank you.